Welcome to Professors Talk Pedagogy, a podcast from the Academy for Teaching and Learning at Baylor University. I'm your host, Christopher Richman. Professors Talk Pedagogy presents discussions with great professors about pedagogy, curriculum, and learning in order to propel the virtuous cycle of teaching. As we frankly and critically investigate our teaching, we open new lines of inquiry, we engage in conversation with colleagues, and we attune to students' experiences, all of which not only improves our teaching, but enriches and motivates ongoing investigation. And so the cycle continues. Today, our guest is Dr. Rishi Shriram, Associate Professor of Higher Education and Student Affairs, Graduate Program Director for the Department of Educational Leadership in the School of Education, and Residential College Faculty Steward of Brooks Residential College at Baylor University. Dr. Shriram researches student affairs practice, collaboration between academic and student affairs, and college student retention, achievement, and learning. He is the author of the book Student Affairs by the Numbers, and his work has been published in respected journals such as the Journal of College Student Development, the Review of Higher Education, the Journal of Student Affairs Research and Practice, and the Journal of College Student Retention. He is currently at work on a book about the development of talent. We are delighted to have Dr. Shriram on the show to discuss where talent comes from, how students and instructors think about talent, and how higher ed faculty and student affairs can cooperate to improve student outcomes. And a quick note before we dive into the conversation, our apologies for the audio crackling throughout this episode. We had some software equipment issues. Now, we cleaned it up as best as we could, but we really thought that this conversation was so rich that our listeners would be willing to power through the minor annoyance. Rishi Shuram, thank you for joining the show today. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here. I am so delighted to have you as a guest on this show because you are working on a topic. I know it's not the only thing that you research, but it's really where a lot of your work in your head is right now, and that is the issue of talent and talent development. So maybe to set the stage for us here, could you give us an idea of how you got interested in this beyond just a basic curiosity to the point where you know, you're publishing on it and you're looking at the research and doing some of your own research as well on it? Yes, I would love to. I um, remember distinctly in the first week of my PhD program, a professor and mentor of mine handed me what was new at the time. This was 2006, Carol Dweck's book, Mindset. And uh, Dr. Carol Dweck is a Stanford psychologist and faculty member, a well-known researcher. And since then, her work has really taken off. At the time, it was um, just entering into the, the mainstream with, with her book. And, uh, and she talks about these two mindsets, a growth mindset, this belief that your talent, intelligence, abilities can substantially uh, increase and grow, or the fixed mindset, uh, you have what you have, and that's that. You're, you're fixed in, in your uh, ability and in your talent. And this struck me because I had no idea that people could even have a growth mindset. I was such a fixed mindset. Uh, And uh, I read her book cover to cover, uh, which isn't like me uh, in a short amount of time. Uh, And immediately I said, this is what I'm doing my dissertation on. And I, I did my dissertation on it. But one of the things that fascinated me 
in that process is that uh, Carol Dweck is a psychologist. So clearly she is, and rightly, she's studying the psychology of talent development. But I wanted to know, is it true? So Dr. Dweck is saying, hey, what you believe about intelligence, your talent matters. Uh, but she doesn't really delve into the question of, can your intelligence actually increase? Can your talent really increase and to what extent? So the next thing I knew after my dissertation as a new faculty member, I was trying to learn everything I could about what intelligence is and how the brain works. And um, with a PhD in education, I was a little embarrassed how little I knew about the science of learning and yeah. brain development. And this got me on a road to learn as much as I could about intelligence. The more I learned about intelligence, the more I became convinced that learning is in and of itself is a skill that's developed. Uh, I looked at a lot of the studies that we refer to that talk about intelligence being somewhat innate, you know, nature, nurture kind of thing. And, and the more I read, the more I became increasingly convinced that nurture was winning the battle. And even the studies that were proclaiming nature, I was just very un underwhelmed by when you actually get into the weeds of how they're done and, and why they make their conclusions. While the studies that were making the case for nurture, I found to be much more compelling. Next thing I knew, I was like, I'm not just studying mindset and I'm not just studying intelligence, I'm really studying talent development. And, um, and so it just led me on this unexpected journey to make this provocative claim that uh, I make in sincerity, not just to be dramatic or to exaggerate to make a point. Uh, I've come to the conclusion that there is no such thing as innate talent, that talent is cultivated, developed, and learned. Yeah, that is a bold claim. Now I'll circle back to that. But uh, first I wanna just ask like, what difference has this realization made for you in both your teaching work and in just like every everyday interactions because this is such a fundamental aspect of just human living that it you know because i've 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 read dweck too and have come to the similar sort of epiphany about this it is in my experience it's so hard to adjust your behavior personally and in the way that you talk to other people because the fixed mindset is so ingrained. Uh, I know you have kids. I have a four-year-old and it's like, it's so hard to praise in the right way because you want to praise, but you don't want to praise in a way that reinforces an innate, a, a notion of innate intelligence. So try to not tell my daughter she's smart. I try to tell my daughter she's done this well, or she worked hard at this and she, you know, all that growth mindset stuff. So what's your personal experience been? It has been quite a journey. Uh, I would say that um, uh, on a personal basis, it started, uh, I started to reevaluate revisionist history kind of thing, yeah. uh, my childhood and the things that I would have said I'm naturally good at and the things that I would have said I was naturally bad at. And I really started to wonder uh, within this kind of new framework, does my experience explain why I was good at particular things, why I was bad at particular things? And and I started to really think, yes, I mean, I, I feel like going back into my own past, reliving some of my um, 
uh, greatest successes and failures, I really started to see how I created self-fulfilling prophecies by my own beliefs about what was innate and what was uh, developed. Uh, you know, my my spouse, uh, she's smarter than I am. So I started to, and she's an educator through and through. So I started to, to share these ideas with her. Um, and she's a little bit more of a skeptical mind than I am. So it was really great to bounce these things off of her. And, and she started to really come on board as well. And um, so we have four children. And uh, so the natural thing for a professor to do when he doesn't or he or she doesn't want to go through IRB is to experiment on your own children, right? It's a pilot study. <laughs> yes, that's right. And, uh, um, and it was it was fascinating to see uh, to go through, you know, some pretty crazy experiences. Like my son was in love with baseball and was batting right-handed. And uh, we switched him to batting left-handed when he was nine years old. And people said it couldn't be done, it shouldn't be done. And uh, he became really successful batting left-handed. You know, our daughter, Lily, um, she was a fine reader, but wasn't as good of a reader as uh, her older brother was. And I was a little concerned. and teachers told us, you know, some kids are good readers and some kids aren't and worked with her uh, to improve her reading scores. And, and uh, Lily just really, um, uh, you know, I, I feel like we released the beast in her because she's taken this talent development model so seriously and is just excelling in anything that she chooses to excel in again, because she understands how, how this all works. You know, and then when it goes to my other two, Stella and, and Levi, uh, Stella's an eighth grader and Levi is our bonus baby. So he's just three years old. Uh, it's been interesting to see how with my oldest, it was a new idea that talent could be entirely developed. And with Stella and Levi, they've just, they've grown with this, grown up with this, right? So this is the paradigm that they've always known. And uh, it's, people tell me all the time, you know, Stella's so athletically gifted, you know, and, and I don't even argue with them because it's like, well, actually, you know, based upon this decade of research I've been yeah, doing, yeah. Uh, but, but she would never say that, right? She knows what, what it has taken and what it requires. And so it, it has absolutely been transformative as a teacher, uh, as a parent, and, and just personally with my own uh, goals, dreams, and desires to rethink um, how how I want to live my life, what I want to be good at, for what purpose uh, do I want to be good at anything? Is it all about me and my success, or is there a larger purpose here? And and I actually think that it creates some complexity and sophistication that believing in innate talent doesn't have. Because when you start to understand where talent comes from and why, you have to make some hard choices about where you're going to invest your time and your resources. You can't just say, well, I'm good at this or I'm not good at that. You actually have to say, within my abilities of, of resources and time, where do I want to, to place my investment? Yeah. Yeah. And that fixed mindset is so ingrained that I think in a lot of ways trying to develop the growth mindset is counter-cultural in a lot of ways. I don't know what your experience has been like with 
uh, like teachers or coaches and that kind of thing. And so you're trying to, you know, instill this particular thing, but they might be hearing all that kind of traditional stuff that it reinforces the fixed mindset or overhearing it, <laughs> you know? Oh, there's no doubt. I, I completely agree. One of the most shocking things I learned on my research journey is Alfred Binet, who invented the IQ test, uh, invented it because he so firmly believed that intelligence was developed. Right. Uh, and um, after developing the IQ test and after showing, you know, Binet took uh, children who had been kicked out of French public schools as unteachable because uh, they had fallen more than two grade levels uh, beneath their, behind their peers. And so Binet takes them into his own makeshift school and in one or two years has them performing at or above the quote unquote normal kids. And French Congress people start to visit Binet. And so he's, he's so passionate about the development of intelligence that he wants a way to measure it so that he can actually prove that intelligence is developed so he dies tragically shortly after developing this test. And it's an American who comes over to France, takes this test, translates it to English, and then says to his fellow Americans, I have a test that will tell you who's smart and who's not. So the only reason we believe that IQ is fixed is because uh, of Lewis Terman bringing that over with a fixed mindset, not because of the inventor of the IQ test and what he thought of intelligence. Completely misunderstanding uh, the original intent of yeah, the Yeah, and I, I think it is part of the American culture, right? We're, we're, we want the superstar, and we don't want to hear that the superstar worked really, really hard. Like, we, that can be part of the story, right? But we want to know that there's something uh, that there's something that makes this person a demigod, right? That makes this person truly amazing, uh, that is awe-inspiring, that takes responsibility off of me to, you know, do anything differently. Uh, there's just something appealing about that. Yeah. So that gets us to that bold claim that you make on your website, there is no such thing as innate, ta innate talent. So how do people react to this when, when you lay it out that way? What kind of feedback do you get from folks? So I've been sharing this message for 15 years now in various forms uh, to different audiences. And uh, I should start by saying that um, most experts on talent and on intelligence would say that it is... Um, somewhere in the vicinity of 50-50, 50% uh, nature, what you're born with, genetics, and 50% nurture, your experiences. So let me start by just laying that out there. That's where I think if I were to uh, simplify where most experts are on this issue, that's where they lie, which is radically different from where I land on this issue. So one of the things that I, I try to do uh, when I share this is to really explain where I think talent comes from and why, and then to give at least a glimpse into uh, how the brain works, why from a logical perspective, the idea that our brains are born to do particular things makes no sense and really has no basis in science. Uh, you talk to any geneticist and they'll say we are on the cusp of 
finding those things. Yeah. But shockingly, we haven't found those things. What we find is an extraordinary uh, organ, the brain, that can learn whatever it envir its environment requires for it to learn. Like that's the beauty, that's the awe-inspiring thing. But the idea that some brains are born to throw baseballs makes no sense, even from an evolutionary perspective, right? That it makes no sense. Uh, and so I was, I was just really fascinated to, to look into that. Exactly, exactly. And, and there are going to be things that are, are required of our brains 100 years from now that haven't been invented today. So I would say that, of course, my audience um, is uh, uh, correctly skeptical of, of this guy standing up there saying, you know, this, we've been lied to all this time. But uh, I do think that they appreciate the amount of time that I've put into studying this that um, uh, that I break it down into, uh, rather than spending my efforts trying to convince people that talent is not innate, uh, I do make that claim, but I spend the vast majority of my time trying to help my audiences understand where talent comes from, so that even if they walk away saying, I mean, I still kind of think it's innate, you know, if I, my audience still thinks that way, uh, I've still equipped them with the tools on whatever whatever percentage they want to give to being developed. They know uh, they have a better framework for understanding how to, to do that. But my worry and the reason uh, that I continue to make the claim is that if if talent isn't innate, like I say it is, uh, or like I say it isn't, then I even even if we give 5% to innate talent, 10%, yeah. how is that going to hold us back? Like how, uh, that's my concern, right? That I think that there are consequences to even thinking that some of it comes from how we're born, uh, if that in fact is not true. Yeah, yeah. That I think culturally too, so much of our experience especially when we're young is is the competition aspect of of life and right. so it, it turns a lot of things into well if i'm if i don't have like immediate success in this thing then it's not worth my time or if i don't immediately ex excel in it then it the, and then the explanation is well i don't have the the innate the exactly. convenient explanation yes. is i don't have the the innate uh, talent but i think there's there's stories of a lot of people especially later in life like sort of happening upon the growth mindset sort of like because you get to a point in your life where you want to do things for the enjoyment of the things rather than trying to excel at them so you know you're 50 years old and you pick up the guitar or, or a second or third language or something like that and you know that you're never gonna like you know pl play uh you know the big uh stadium rock show but it's like it's there's you're developing talent yes you know and yes so i don't know that the, the the language of like competency versus like excellence. I don't know what exactly the categories we need, but we need better ways to think about this. Yes, we certainly do. Yeah. So you've boiled it down to the five M's, which uh, sounds like uh, you're working on a book. <laughs> <laughs> I am working on a book. So yes. can, can you, we, we've hit one of them, which is mindset, yes. right? Uh, yes. So if you want to just briefly lay out, so rather than, as you were saying, focusing on there is no innate talent, how your, the positive side is, well, how do we actually develop talent? And you've got this uh, catchy five M's for it. 
Yeah, to, to lay them out very briefly, uh, the five M's are mindset, um, some stuff in your brain called myelin, that's spelled M-Y-E-L-I-N, mastery, motivation, and mentorship. And I believe that talent entirely comes, is entirely developed from those five M's, mindset, myelin, mastery, motivation, and mentorship. Um, we've already talked about mindset and the importance of our beliefs about our ability to change, our beliefs about our ability to develop talent. If we don't actually believe that we can uh, change in meaningful ways, it's, it's not going to happen. Um, myelin is something that I came across in my study of the brain and how it works. We, through grade school, we all learn that we have brains and we learn that brain cells are neurons. Uh, and, um, and maybe we learn that when we learn, it's because our neurons connect. They don't actually touch in their connections. They have these little gaps in their connections. We call those synapses. And I'm guessing that that's, uh, for, for most people, that's about as much as they know about brain development. Certainly for me, that was the case. Um, so I was fascinated to learn that only half of our brain is made up of neurons. Uh, the other half are made up of these cells called glial cells. And, uh, and their job is to latch on to our neurons. And when we think, when we feel, when we do, we're sending signals through our brain. And the neurons, and particularly the axons of the neurons, they, they, they're brain wires, right, that, that send the signals. Okay, well, glial cells latch onto the neuron and they build this fatty white substance called myelin. And what it does, myelin allows for those brain signals to travel faster, stronger, and better. The reason I think this is important is because I think that myelin is talent, biologically speaking. We as human beings are not born with myelin, or at least we're born with very little of it. It is developed through experience. In other words, our brains build myelin in the places where we send those signals the most. So if we do particular activities over and over, our brains are going to myelinate those brain signals and the ones that we seldom use will remain unmyelinated. We've actually measured this and a well-myelinated brain signal travels uh, more than a hundred times faster than an unmyelinated brain signal. So when we see someone who's sending brain signals a hundred times faster and stronger and better than we are, than I am, I call that person talented. And, uh, and so this was really eye-opening for me because it helped me to understand what's actually happening, right? We focus when it comes to talent, particularly with something like athletics, uh, we focus so much on our bodies. Uh, but it's all our brain. I mean, talent is in our head. Uh, it's, it's our brain that's controlling our feet when we watch the World Cup. It's uh, our brains that are controlling our hands when we're playing the piano. There's no such thing as muscle memory. Muscle memory is not a scientific term. It's a colloquial term that's describing well-myelinated signals, you know, that even though it feels like our bodies have learned and that they're doing things on their own, 
what's actually happened is that our brain signals have been so well insulated, so well myelinated that we can do those activities without thinking. It's still our brain. It's still our brain in control, but we can now put our attention elsewhere and create a grocery list or whatever else it might be while still doing those activities. I think this is so critical because uh, we can we can talk about talent as some ethereal, ambiguous thing out there. But when it's like, hey, we're talking about particular skills that can be done uh, at, at at varying degrees of excellence. Uh, what is happening in us when when we become good at that? And and you know th things like um, mammals. Uh, all mammals are born with their brains mostly developed and then go through a little bit of development. Human beings are the only mammal that reverses that, where our brains are born mostly unformed and the vast majority of development occurs after birth. You know, I just think that that's so fascinating that uh, humans have the longest period of childhood. Uh, so it's it's that's why I say, no, we are not born with talent, but clearly we're born, we're called, we're created to develop that talent because we're so helpless when we're born, <laughs> you know, more helpless an than imperative. any other animal. Right. And yet we have these brains that will quickly give us an advantage because we're capable of learning anything. Yeah. So the next one there, mastery. What what's meant by this? Mastery uh, simplified is the quantity and quality of practice necessary in order to become talented. Uh, when I was first embarking on this talent development journey, people would bring up uh, similar names in, in a kind of making their case against my theory. Um, Wolfgang Mozart came up a lot. Albert Einstein came up a lot, and Michael Jordan uh, came up a lot. And uh, I, I clung to those three individuals in particular because they represent uh, varying um, forms of talent. Mozart with music and creativity, Einstein's kind of become the face of intelligence, uh, and uh, and Michael Jordan you know, is arguably uh, one of the greatest uh, athletes of, of all time. Uh, and their their lives have no overlap, interestingly enough. So uh, I I went and I, I studied those three people uh, in particular uh, and found that the um, that the five M's really do apply. You know, we, we mythologize these people. We make them giants. Uh, but when you actually look at their journeys, they're very normal journeys of struggle, of opportunity, of luck, uh, of people investing in them in extraordinary ways. Um, so I was really fascinated to learn that uh, there are, of course, scholars that study talent and expertise, and uh, they have found this pattern that uh, it takes somewhere around uh, 10,000 hours of practice to become an expert. So this was popularized in Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers, uh, and the scholar uh, Anders Ericsson, who, whose research Gladwell used, you know, really shies away from that or shied away from that because uh, he felt like it was too much like a light switch, right? Like that if you hit 10,000, something magical happens, right? It, it doesn't mean it might not take 7,000 or it might not take 12,000, but shockingly, weirdly, there is a pattern there. What I think is even more critical to understand is that we have never in the history of the world 
found someone that we admire for their talent that did not put in thousands of hours of practice. Not one example. I mean, that's shocking to me. Well, but we can't just talk about time. I think time on task is really, really important. Uh, but it has to be matched with the quality of practice. You can do an activity and not get any better at it. So it has to be practiced for the sake of improvement. Anders Ericsson, uh, the term that he used was deliberate practice. Uh, the term that I like to use is difficult practice because uh, I ask myself, is it, if it's not difficult, it doesn't count. So is, is what I'm doing difficult? Is it, is it stretching my abilities? Is it um, uh, really pushing me? Or am I just going through the motions? And it's thousands of hours of difficult practice uh, that leads to, to talent and expertise. Yeah, for those interested in, in more reading on that, this has been popularized like in the book, Make It Stick. Yes. Uh, like... Uh, Rodiger and I forget yeah. it's like three authors. Yeah, Brown. I can put it in the understand. put it in the in the show notes. Um, uh, Bob York's Desirable Difficulties talks about the same kind of thing. So you know, if if all you for a sports metaphor, if all you're doing is you're swinging at fastballs in practice over and over and over and over and over again, not only you're not getting much better at hitting fastballs, you're not getting any better at hitting the curveballs and the sliders, exactly. and, yeah, and the weird knuckleball that yes. <laughs> yes. knuckleball yes. that comes your way, because part of being a good hitter is recognizing quickly what pitch you're getting. And so you need, you know, for that particular example, it's the discernment that's just as important as being able to hit a fastball when it comes. Yes, that's yeah. right. Yeah, so I, that, that, I'm glad that you you describe it that way as it's quality as much as, as it is quantity. And that's it, to, to think about our, our students in, in colleges and universities, I think a lot of times they're thinking a l primarily about time on task, you know, is how many students have come to us and said, oh, I don't like the way I performed on this exam and I studied for X number of hours. And, you know, the the, the thoughtful instructor kind of says in the back of her head, like, it doesn't matter. Like, that's not the first thing I want to ask you. It's not the first thing I want to know. I want to know how you yes. study. I don't want to, I don't care that you studied for 13 hours that's right. for this. You that's know, right. like, let's talk about how you studied. And, and the how makes a world of difference. I mean, somebody can study using particular strategies and learn twice as much in half the time. I mean, there's, there, there's research that really backs that up. Make It Stick really summarizes a lot of that research. But if we don't know that, if we don't really understand that this is developed, then we're not, that talent is developed, then we're not going to put the emphasis on the strategies and the how like we should. We'll always in the back of our minds say, well, maybe I just wasn't cut out for this. Right, yeah. All right, so the next one is motivation. Here's a slippery one, right? Yeah, so with talent development, there's a fascinating cost-benefit analysis. I don't play golf. So if I were to take up golf, uh, it would be really fun, I imagine, for the first six weeks because any investment I would put into golf, I would immediately see improvement, right? From somebody who has no idea what he's doing to learning how to hold the club, you know, take a swing, starting to learn some differences between good form and bad form. Uh, this is the joy of being a beginner, right? You get to see so vividly your progress. Motivation comes into play when you're no longer a beginner. And, uh, so when I think of motivation, it's not the motivation to do something. It's the motivation to improve at something. And we all tend to lose that motivation to improve 
because it gets harder and harder to improve the better you are at something. Yeah, yeah. And no matter what you're pursuing, there really is such a thing as talent plateaus, right? Where no matter how much time you invest, you hit this plateau over a period of time. It's this phenomenon and, uh, and you have to get through it before you finally see progress. So motivation becomes really important, uh, particularly among the most talented individuals, because uh, at some point you're going to get to a status where the people around you are saying, you're so good. Like, why are you, why are you practicing all the time? You know, like, aren't you satisfied? You know, every, it's like everyone is discouraging you from improving because they see how great you are, uh, whereas you are looking at how great you have yet to become. And, and so motivation, I think, is really critical because uh, who's going to spend thousands of hours of difficult practice on something that they that they don't love? Yeah. So I've learned to think about strengths and weaknesses uh, differently. Uh, uh, an author um, on leadership and a thinker on leadership, Marcus Buckingham, has really helped me in this journey. But he talks about how we need to stop thinking about strengths as the things that we're good at and weaknesses as, as the things that we're bad at. He says, instead, we should think about strengths as the activities that make us feel strong, energized, excited and weaknesses as the activities that make us feel weak or drained or empty. Because if we put the vast majority of our time and effort into activities that make us feel strong, then we're going to invest ourselves fully into improving. Uh, whereas if we try to do that in activity, to some extent, this is appropriate, right? Because we want to make, we want to be at minimum standards for everything, but we can't be excellent at everything. So we really have to think in sophisticated ways about where am I going to invest myself? So motivation becomes, I think, a really complex element rather than do you care or do you not? It's how much do you care with all the competing cares that you have in your life? Uh, if you want to be that rock star guitarist, are you willing to quit your job? I mean, are you willing to play the guitar 40 hours a week? Are you willing to invest in the best teachers? Well, what if those best teachers are across the country? Are you willing to move there? You know, and these are the things that we see people do uh, when that, that end up being the people that we admire most for their for their talent development. Uh, so it, it's been really interesting to see how much motivation matters, uh, particularly when you're getting through those, okay, well, I've gone from bad to average, uh, but do I really want to be great at something? So for college instructors, I think the struggle often is not in the, the 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 plateau in their students of talent, but getting them like that first lift. Yes. So, uh, has your research helped helped you to conceptualize, you know, how, how an instructor teaches a, a freshman level course that's required by the university, and there's just kind of like so many motivational things stacked against. Yes. Uh there are, are two scholars who often write together. Their names are Desi and Ryan, and they have done the most work on motivation. And, um, and they talk about three things that, uh, that can help to improve 
uh, anyone's motivation. Now, I'm not using their language because, you know, like the five M's, I like alliteration, so I call them the three C's. Uh, but the first is competence. So when students can see themselves becoming more competent, it uh, progress really is the best motivator. Well, how can you do that as an instructor? Uh, I think by lowering the stakes and increasing the frequency of exams. So I've really, uh, you know, long ago, I, I wasn't really a fan of, of quizzes or reading exams. Uh, it's, it's rare for me to have a class session where I am not giving a test. And it's a 15 minute test, a 20 minute test, but I want students to see the progress that they're making uh, or not making, and they need multiple opportunities to do that. If our classes are structured where there's a big test halfway through and a big test at the end or three tests scattered throughout an, a, a semester, uh, those are high stakes and it's going to be difficult for them to see their progress and their competence. So that's, that's the first C. Uh, the second C is choice. This is hard as an instructor, but to whatever extent we feel comfortable in giving students choice, it increases their motivation. So maybe they have to do this project, but the particular topic underneath the umbrella assignment they're given choice on or um, or different ways of approaching an assignment. The more freedom we can give students uh, autonomy, as Dusty and Ryan call it, uh, the more they're going to be uh, motivated. Uh, and it might even be, hey, you have to do these six things, but you can choose the order in which you do them. Yeah. Uh, so we're, as instructors, there's depending upon the class, that's going to be easier or harder to do. But even at the micro level, when you give students choice, it is bumping, boosting their motivation. The third C is community. Uh, we are motivated by our community and particularly by our peers. Yeah. And I think instructors, uh, we as instructors can overemphasize the influence that we have on our students and underemphasize the uh, effect that students have on each other. So if I, I, and I've seen this in my classes, when I ask students to submit something to me and I'm the only one who sees it, there's a difference than when I ask them to submit something that they're fellow peers are going to see. There's an added bump in motivation. If they they want to look good in front of their peers, they want to impress their peers, they want to be validated by their peers. And so um, uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be group work, but it could be presentations in front of the class or sharing, any, any way of sharing your uh, work with other peers. The more we can make it a communal experience, the more motivation is going to follow. Yeah, and really, that's just a more natural learning environment. I mean, when when it you're is. outside of so much of the artificiality of K through twelve and even higher ed, learning happens in community. Learning happens socially. There's somebody who's holding you accountable, or someone that you have to submit it to, or someone who's going to read a draft before you send it along. So that's just the way. It's more natural to, to do it that way. Yeah. Teaching classes over Zoom uh, was really interesting during COVID because th at first I was like, wow, I can't believe how effective Zoom is or any kind of virtual platform like 
in being able to teach classes. Uh, and, and so I was immediately Im impressed. Uh, and then you realize, my goodness, the intangibles of not seeing each other, of not having side conversations, of not touching base before, after class or during breaks or, or anything like that. Uh, we lose so much. The fact that uh, someone has to make more of an effort to uh, speak on Zoom versus in the classroom, I can hear someone inhale, you know, like they're going to speak and I know that they want to speak or just see, make eye contact. So, so those kinds of things have really made me cherish community in the classroom <laughs> in a whole new way. Yeah, that's well said. All right, so that last M, mentorship, and I think that the, the social aspect of learning probably dovetails pretty well with that too, yeah? Yes, it, it does. Um, so again, as, as a teacher, uh, in the same way, I'm a PhD in education, and I feel like I knew so little about brain development and the science of learning. And uh, and then I've been a, a faculty member for some time, and I, I started to realize that I didn't know that much about what really makes someone a great teacher versus uh, an average or mediocre uh, teacher. And uh, so I really started to dive into this because it was clearly you know, uh, apparent to me that Mozart, his father was a composer, obsessed with him becoming a composer. Mozart wouldn't have been Mozart if he didn't have his father from the moment he was born. Uh, Einstein similarly had these opportunities to be mentored by people in very peculiar places that you think, oh, he never would have won that Nobel Prize if it wasn't for this unheard of teacher that he live, lived with for a few years. Uh, and, and Michael Jordan, you know, there there are some coaches that we don't associate with Michael Jordan, like, like Bob Knight, you know, in the Olympics, uh, Michael Jordan uh, only won uh, his six championships under one coach, Phil Jackson. Yeah. You know, any year that he played where Phil Jackson was not his head coach, he did not win a, a championship. I mean, you just see these patterns. So I started to go into the the literature on, on great teaching. And um, long story short, I found that uh, three things that seem to really separate great teachers from average teachers. And I should start by saying that personality had nothing to do with it. Great teachers are extroverts. Great teachers are introverts. Great teachers are charismatic. Great teachers are far from charismatic. Great teachers give great speeches. Great teachers give awful speeches or, or would run away from ever giving a speech. Uh, and, and also, uh, some great teachers are kind and nurturing, and some great teachers are mean and not nurturing, right? So, so all those things that you might prefer in a teacher, rightly so, aren't necessarily what separate them as great. The three things that um, that really rose to the surface was how much great teachers get their students to perform. And uh, depending upon what the activity is, this is easier or harder to imagine. Uh, if it's basketball, if it's ballet, if it's uh, music, of course, performance is so obvious. But even with things like history or math, using problem-based learning, using case studies, whatever you're wanting your students to do, great teachers are obsessed with getting their students to do it often. Yeah. Again, from a more practical perspective as an instructor, this has caused me to give many more assignments that are shorter because I want my students constantly doing. 
Well, the flip side of that, the second thing, in addition to performance, is feedback. So uh, we might be all familiar with the acronym SMART for SMART goals. Uh, I think what we really need is SMART feedback. Uh, SMART standing for specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, timely. Like students need specific feedback that is directly connected to the performance that they just went through. So if it is a quiz, they need to know immediately uh, what they did well on, what they did not. If, if they're doing an activity, a presentation, the more specific we can be about you need to do this, not this, uh, is, is fundamental for, for their improvement. Uh, so performance is first, feedback is second. And then the third thing uh, that has been very convicting to me as an instructor is that great teachers measure progress by what is learned rather than by what is taught. I had to swallow my pride and realize that just because I've said something or quote unquote taught something doesn't mean that I've done my job as a teacher. Um, as uh, John Wooden, uh, the UCLA basketball coach, famously said, you haven't taught until they have learned. And, uh, and this is true of great teachers. They don't move on to step three until they're convinced that their students have learned step two. Whereas I might have said in the past, I'm moving on to step three because I've taught step two and it's on them as to whether they've learned it or not. Well, I understand that students should be accountable and that they have a responsibility and learning process, but it actually hurts everybody because yes, I, I've moved on to step four, five, and six, but we are all suffering yeah. because some of us didn't quite grasp step three and I wasn't patient enough to really say, hey, this will benefit all of us if all of us understand step three before moving on to step four. So really thinking about, okay, I'm not going to move on. I'm not going to consider myself as progressing as a teacher until I'm convinced that my students have learned. Yeah. Yeah. It really makes, I think I've said this before, and I've actually mentioned it to your your colleague, Nathan Alleman, uh, that it really makes the idea of the the course schedule on the syllabus a little bit of uh like a pious lie you yeah, know that's right. like that that you know where not where everyone's supposed to end up after 15 weeks when maybe these you've never met these students before but just based on what on what are you basing this idea yes. that you'll that you know where everyone should end up yeah i call this the the learning paradox i think we greatly underestimate what we can learn, but then we greatly overestimate how fast we should be able to learn something. <laughs> That's right? what I'll say. Yeah. And yeah. so, as an instructor, mm -hmm. I've really had to, um, again, swallow my pride and and reduce the breadth mm -hmm. of what I want my students to learn, so that I could increase the depth on what really matters. And yeah. so, I constantly ask myself, and it's painful what really matters right. and and i don't have time to teach what doesn't yep. because it's, mm -hmm. it's such a hard process yeah that's great so the last question for you is uh if you have any thoughts about how your experience as a faculty steward a faculty in residence uh has helped you formulate these ideas and really sort of see how they work on the ground with with college-aged folks yeah, so this is my 10th year living in on campus in a residential community of uh, more than 350 students. 
uh, my community has first year students through seniors, and some of them live in the community all four years. So I get to journey with them their entire college career. And I have become so convinced by living with students in community that uh, learning is so much, as much an emotional process as, as it is an intellectual or academic process. If students don't believe that they can really accomplish something, they are constantly doubting their own validation. They're constantly battling their insecurities. And faculty, I think we um, have no idea how powerful the small things we do and say are for students. They are watching, they're listening. Like, you know, to borrow from Carol Dweck, she's learned uh, the difference between saying, you can't do this versus you can't do this yet. Right. That word yet transforms that sentence to, I believe that you're going to be able to do this but I'm not settling for where you are now versus what could be translated as you're not cut out for this. You weren't born for this. You're not innately gifted at this. Find something else. So it's really humanized the whole experience of learning uh, for me. What happens out of the classroom is just as important and powerful for the learning process as what happens in the classroom. And when students connect with one another on ideas, when they study together, uh, maybe not even studying the same subject, right? But, but they just feel connected. As somebody who studies college student success, uh, it has been uh, really fascinating to see that sense of community, how students feel about their connection to the community is literally the most powerful predictor we have of their thriving. And, you know, whether it's socially or academically, um, even in terms of the academic effort they're putting forth, when students are connected in community everything works better in the learning process. And when they're not connected, when they're feeling alone, uh, nothing, no study strategies or any kind of support we give is going to help much with that until that issue of community is resolved. Yeah. Well, I feel like we could probably do a whole show each on uh, each of the five M's. But for the sake of the time, I think we'll have to leave it there. Uh, when is the book going to be available? Uh, I know you've been working on it. So. Yes. Uh, this has been a um, multi-year project. And uh, uh, and it has humbled me uh, because I would have said, oh, this is going to take a couple years to write. And the more I got into it, the more I've learned. So, you know, my hope is uh, that this book will come out in the next three or four years. I've written 80% of a draft, and uh, but I'm, I'm enjoying the opportunities I can to share. Uh, and so I'm, I'm really grateful for this opportunity. Yeah. Well, thanks again for coming on. Really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Our thanks again to Dr. Shriram for joining the show today. In today's show notes, you'll find links to several resources we discussed, including Carol Dweck's book, Mindset, the book, Make It Stick, and Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers, and the website for talent expert, Marcus Buckingham. That's our show. Thanks for listening, and join us next time for Professors Talk Pedagogy.